from the Black Swan Media Studios, deep inside a secret underground bunker. We're speaking to freedom-loving patriots from all around the country and the world. Welcome to the resistance. This is John Crump, live. Live. What is up, all you party people? I see Mr. and Mrs. Wayne out there, One Love Design, Kurt24, Chris Bullis, Tim Harper, and a bunch of other people. Thank you for joining me on John Crump Live. Today we're going to be talking about the Tennessee Firearms Association, one of my favorite state organizations. If you don't know, I'm in the process of writing a book about different uh, firearms organizations around the country. I haven't got to Tennessee yet, but I will get to them. I'm about 10 months away from releasing it because writing a couple thousand words on every local group is taxing and researching the history of every local group is taxing. So it'll be released in about a year. I also see JSD Supply. Talking about JSD Supply, they are the title sponsor for John Crump Live. John Crump Live is also available on the Firearms Radio Network in an audio-only form. But we are sponsored by JSD Supply. JSD Supply sells everything you need for your builder needs. They have something called the MUP1, which is really interesting. And my co-host of the day built several with a MUP1, and I just... I build them too. There's a up one right there. And they are incredible. They are based on the SIG P320. They also sell Palmer 80s. They sell slides and barrels. They are the home of Patmos. Patmos, sorry. I have a Patmos slide somewhere around here. I have one out here, but I don't know what I did with it. I probably put it back in my uh, my gun stuff. But they do sell Polymer 80s here. for Polymer 80 right there. Um, so let me go on and bring on my co-host. You guys might be expecting Rich, but you get Jason and the Rogue Banshee. Jason? That, that would very, very help. Thank you for filling in today for Rich. He is taking yeah, care no of a sick dog, so he will not be on today. And I, I love taking Rich's job from him. Hey man, you, you, I, I might I might just hire you full time. Don't tell Rich that. No, I don't know. he does a lot of work, and that sounds like a lot of work that I'd have to do on top of the other stuff. Well, I do. I just sent him a, a Roadcaster, uh, like a Roadcaster Pro. T- so nice. He's probably going to be putting that to use. So yeah, he's going to have a lot more uh, professional setup. You know, he's going to have a professional soundboard and everything else. Good deal, man. I have the Rodecaster 2 Pro time. now. Or Pro 2. Which is a badass machine. All right, let's go. Way, at, there's there's your Patmos slide. Oh, well, there's a Patmos slide, but I got one of their SIG ones with the optics. Oh, it's beautiful. And my phone's That's not on mute. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead and bring on our guest. His name is John Harris, and he is involved with one of my favorite firearms group, the Tennessee Firearms Association, which works closely with GOA, Gun Owners of America, which I might have a little something to do with there. So how are you doing, John? Doing fine today. Thank you. Yeah. So you're from Snurma, Tennessee? Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville. Okay, someone's from uh, Tennessee out there. Randy Adams. Sorry, I thought you were saying you're from. Uh, you're from Nashville, man. Nashville's a happening place. Yeah, I, I have uh, been practicing law here now for 36 years. You probably saw a change. I've seen more change than I would have preferred to see. A lot of, uh, how, how do you say it, Yankees <laughs> moving down there? Uh, yeah, trans-southerners. Trans Southerners. -southerners. Yeah, I'm from Northern Virginia, and they did a statistic, and 80% of the people that live in Northern Virginia are not from Northern Virginia. I was born in Northern Virginia. Major blue cities in Tennessee are that way. Yeah, it's crazy, right? And you have to fight back against that. I mean, they they fled what they don't like, bad gun laws and everything. They fled the bad gun laws and everything else and and come to our little neck of the woods because... We're doing better down here, and then they bring their 
views that made their place the way it is. Absolutely. That's happening here in Montana, too. Yes. You have a lot of Californians out there, right? Yeah. A lot. Uh, I have a friend. uh, She worked for Facebook. um, uh, And uh, Facebook went virtual for most of the positions. And she had a a, a little condo in Menlo Park, which is Silicon Valley. She sold that condo and she bought like a freaking ranch out in Montana. Yeah. But but she, she's For one cash. of the good eggs. She's not she's very, very pro gun. Shoots and everything, so yeah. Okay. They're they're allowed. Yeah, and Texas too, yeah. I know Texas is getting a well, influx of it in Arizona. I don't know. they're like a these anti gunners are like a virus. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm sharing too much. I, would, I don't know if they're necessarily a virus. They might be more of a fungus. <laughs> That's a possibility. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about the Tennessee Firearms Association now that we went off on, you know, anti-gun people moving into our states. <laughs> sure. Tennessee uh, first passed a shall-issue permitting law in May of 1994. And that law really implemented a permitting system, but it didn't really address the statutory scheme in Tennessee, which existed on the presumption that citizens couldn't legally carry guns. So it created the ability to carry, but it left a huge number of problems in terms of the practical ability to carry. And so in 95, we formed the Tennessee Firearms Association, which is a 501c4. We're a nonprofit, not a charity. We're an advocacy group to focus and work on specifically the issue of trying to make Tennessee's capacity to carry the permit law more practical in terms of being able to do it on a day-to-day basis. So we focused on improving the permitting system. We focused on getting rid of gun-free zones, improving the restoration of rights statutes, anything that had to do with owning a gun, whether you were a permit holder, you wanted to be a recreational shooter, you wanted to be a hunter, just a collector even, we've worked on all of those issues and we've been doing that since 1995, almost 28 years now. No, oh, wow, that that's really awesome. Have you been with the organization since uh, 95? Yes, I was one of the 12 individuals that formed it in 95, and I have served in a volunteer capacity as its executive director and also as the PAC treasurer uh, for the last uh, 28 years. Wow. So you've really dedicated your life to firearms. It's a uh, it's an issue I care a lot about. And when you look at at that span of time and realize it's a uh, entirely volunteer position, I've probably lost a couple of vacation opportunities by pursuing it. Yeah, I know. Every time I try to go on vacation, um, I can't go on vacation. Uh, Hank Strange, who's another like big YouTuber, he, I was talking to him last time. I was like, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm not going to do anything for the next week. And he looks at mm-hmm. me and goes, yeah, right. Like, I'll believe it when I see it. (laughs) What's that? How'd that work out for you? Mm, Well, it it worked out. It didn't, right? It it worked out if you wanted me to, like, write about gun stuff. It worked out. (laughs) 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 But but if you wanted to actually, but if you were my wife, not so much. How do you balance, like, your personal life with everything that you do for gun rights. Cause that's one of the issues that I have a lot. And I know that's kind of off topic, but yeah, it's something I, I I'm interested in. Tell people it's uh, the balance comes from excessive amounts of caffeine, uh, staying up late and you know, cause you run a law practice and I'm a litigator. So I'm full time during the day, typically, <laughs> Uh, running that, and then the TFA between the pack and the and the C4 entity takes somewhere between 15 and 25 hours a week, depending on if the legislature's in session, 
of additional work. Uh, and, and so you fit it in, you stay up late at night. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a night owl anyhow. And my, most of my family, um, would not fall into the nine hour category. So I can pick up two or three hours a day, even after I get home from work, usually working on firearms related issues, uh, in the solitude of being the only one up. But then a lot of it takes place during the day because when the legislature's in session, you're dealing with legislators, you're dealing with committee hearings, you've got to physically be at the General Assembly. Uh, you just make it work. And fortunately in my law practice, I've got uh, partners and I have a very strong paralegal that help me manage the law practice side of it when I need to be doing some other things uh, on the Second Amendment advocacy side. Yeah, I mean, basically you sound like me and I think that's a lot of us now you've worked a lot with GOA and you know Eric Pratt and all them how did that relationship come about you know I started working with uh GOA years and years ago when when Larry was running it and oh, Larry's uh, a good guy I've always admired GOA for the fact that I felt that they were substantially more no compromise than, than, you know, let's just say one of the other major gun advocacy <laughs> groups in the nation. And it's, that they were a lot more focused on the stewardship of pursuing restoration of the Second Amendment. So we have worked with GOA and have recommended its membership opportunities to our members for a long time as the primary advocacy voice at the national level. And, and they have grown and expanded in, in that up those opportunities over the years. And Eric, I think, taking over with his father has done a fantastic job of continuing that tradition. Uh, one thing that we've started doing as a state organization, and this leverages also the fact that as an attorney, I'm admitted uh, throughout the country in various appellate courts and also in the U.S. Supreme Court, is TFA and GOA have partnered I would think in probably 12 different federal cases in the last three years as amicus parties filing briefs, including most recently the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Bruin decision that was rendered by the Supreme Court just this past uh, June that I think is going to have major impacts in how we address Second Amendment issues at the state and federal level uh, in coming years. Yeah. It... <sighs> It seems like uh, you guys do partner up with GOA quite a bit. Uh, I know you probably know Rob Olson. Yes. Yeah, I've talked to Rob like five times today, working on something with him. Him yeah. and I work together a lot. Uh, and Steven Stamboli and those guys. Um, yeah, so we work a lot with those guys, um, and I know you do too. And GOA values the partnership with uh, uh, TFA. Um, it's There's only a few state organizations that I would say is on the level as GOA, and I would say like TFA, um, also VCDL. WVCDL, AZDCL, DCL, DC, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. College uh, is easier to say. <laughs> yeah, TFA is very easier to say. And you have an event coming up soon. We do. Uh, TFA is a, is a C4, and it's membership-based. But we also run a, a state uh, political action committee called the TFA LAC and uh, Tennessee Firearms Association. Legislative Action Committee, and its major annual fundraisers coming up on September the 3rd uh, in uh, Middle Tennessee, and it is how we raise the bulk of our money each year to support candidates for the state legislature, primarily the state legislature. Uh, we've invested in some governor's races in the past, uh, but when the governor's races are talking $10 million you know, budgets, grassroots groups don't play in that arena very well or very prominently. So we focus on the legislature 
where we can get stuff done. And so we've got an event coming up September the 3rd that'll be our main fundraiser uh, to uh, get the money into the organization that we use to support political candidates. And the great thing about our PAC is all of the people that help run it are essentially volunteers and 100% of the net proceeds from the PAC stay in Tennessee to help uh, Tennessee legislators. We don't use those funds, for example, when I work with GOA on federal litigation, that comes from the C4 itself as opposed to the PAC. Well, that's really cool. What's the biggest, and Jason, you're allowed to ask questions still. Yeah. What? Yeah. I was thinking more of a comment there is, is one of the things I like to say is that if you want to make change, it's easier to make change at the local and your state legislator level than anything else above, because they're the people that you, 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 well, depending on where you live here in, in Montana, we see these people every day. I mean, they're at the store shopping with us. These are the people that have to deal with us face to face. And, you know, I, I'm very much for the, the bubbling up from the bottom. Let's start at our local and, and legislative levels and then start getting, you know, taking back, taking back the narrative at that point. Because if you do that at the state level, you know, and you have enough states to do that, when you have something happen at the federal level, well, what happens when the states just go, you know, screw you? You know, it's, it's the whole thing of the cops can't stop everybody from running a stoplight. And that's what I kind of like about what your mission is, is that you're doing that at the legislative level where the biggest, you can make the biggest impact for the money. Yeah. I was... so. It is so hard to play at the federal level because of the volume of money yep. that it takes to play at that level. But we can, with TFA and, you know, similar state organizations, we can have major impacts and it's much more effective to run grassroots groups yep. at the state level because, as you said, they have direct access to their legislators that doesn't exist once someone runs off to Congress and starts living in that bubble. Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely see that. I can definitely see. Um, yeah, at the state level, a lot of people overlooked the state level, but that's where the most important thing is, is at the states, because those are the laws that are going to affect you, especially right now with the gridlock in Congress. Hardly anything gets done, even though the uh, anti-gun stuff, the Safer Community Act got done, but other stuff, <laughs> it's really hard for things to get done. So at the state level is where we really have to watch. Look at what happened at Virginia a few years ago. They took over the legislature and all this anti-gun stuff started being passed. Now Virginia is kind of going the other way, but that's the dangers of not paying attention on the local level. And, and at the local level, it really has, as a practical matter, a lot more impact on your day-to-day -day lives. That's where the carry laws are passed. That's where a lot of the gun-free zone laws exist. That's where range protection acts come into play. Uh, that's where civil immunity, criminal immunity, like what should have existed in Kyle Rittenhouse's case, all of those kinds of laws really are state law issues under the 10th Amendment. And, and we ought to be telling Congress and our state legislators to, to take the 10th Amendment seriously and get the federal government out of the Second Amendment business. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because right now, the Second Amendment was never meant for the federal government at all. No. In, in, no, the, not, in, the, not, in, in the least respect. Uh, they, they have abused through uh, manipulation of the Commerce Clause and the Taxing Authority. 100%. Uh, to get us where they are now with federal power. And, and we're going to have to look at the Supreme Court predominantly and there are some cases coming through the system to say that because of the Second Amendment, the abuse of conflicting provisions of the Constitution, taxing and commerce, that the Second Amendment shall not be infringed clause, even if they have taxing and commerce authority, restricts that when it comes to firearms so that they should not have jurisdiction there. 100%. I can't agree with you more. I mean, that is... That is that is spot on. 
So how do we fix it? Well, um, I know that's a tough question. And <laughs> because so many of the people that end up in Congress come through local government or state legislators, they get their feet into the political system by, by being a local official, a state official, and then they move up. And if we can use the state system as a means of ferreting out the rhinos, the establishment Republicans, the Chamber of Commerce Republicans, if we can ferret out through the state systems, the ones who have no constitutional stewardship in their spine, then we're better able, once they do get in power, to, to make progress at the federal level. The other is we've got to work on a president like Trump did that will give us the right federal judges that have the backbone to stand up and say, Congress, you just don't have the authority over this issue. And, and we would not be even where we are today had it not been for many of the federal judges that Trump put in place. And, and we need more of that. Uh, the court system is going to have to do what the legislature is unwilling to do. Yeah, I think we need more Republicans like Brian Fitzpatrick and Liz Cheney. Yeah. That's a joke, by the way. Brian Fitzpatrick voted for the assault weapons ban, and Liz Cheney is uh, Liz Cheney. So, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, one thing that Trump did do, I don't like his bump stock rolling, and I don't like a lot of the stuff that he did do, but one of the great things and one of the most important things for president to do, and this is often overlooked, is the appointment of judges. Very it, strong. We would not have three major opinions that came down in June. We would not have those three opinions had it not been for Trump's appointment. It just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. And, and, and you know, you mentioned Trump, you know, I think he did screw up substantially when he got emotional and overreacted to Las Vegas and directed ATF to, to pursue the bump stock issue. But the two of the opinions that came down in June, one that everybody talks about in the Second Amendment arena is the Bruin decision, which has to dramatically changed the statutory analysis that the judges will use on Second Amendment challenges and changed it in favor of the people and in expanding Second Amendment. But the other one that really doesn't get a lot of discussion in the Second Amendment arena is the EPA decision that came down yep. in June also. And the EPA decision is critical when you look at what ATF's doing with bump stocks, SBRs, uh, force reset triggers. And the EPA decision adopted or applied what's called the major questions doctrine, as well as the concept of separation of powers and essentially struck down at the Supreme Court level a whole host of EPA regulations based upon the conclusion that the EPA regulations went so far beyond the authority of what a administrative agency could do that they were unconstitutional, that they had invaded the separation of powers doctrine. And if you look at the bump stock, the, the, the the SBR, AR pistol issue, the reset trigger issues, all of those have the same fatal flaws that the court has already said the EPA exercised. And there are cases in the pipeline. I know Rob Wilson and uh, Olson and I have talked about this recently uh, that are going to take that same issue back to the court and apply it to the ATF. And, and we, we could and hopefully will see some of the ATF's regulatory actions cut back substantially based on this separation of powers, major questions, doctrine issue. Yeah, I think you, one of the ones that you might be talking about is the, and I have no idea because I didn't talk to Rob about any of this stuff. By the way, we call him the, chick, the chicken farmer. I don't know. He brings me eggs every once in a while. Okay. So we call him the chicken farmer because of that. But one of the things that... Um, I, I think one of the cases I think would be the Oposha case. Yes. Uh, that's the bump stock case. And I think, you, didn't you guys file a amicus brief in there? We are. That one's going up there. Well, there's one at least going up through the Sixth Circuit. And it's, uh, yeah, that's Oposha. It's, it's one of them. Yeah. Oposha. And, and 
Uh, did you also no? That, I'm thinking that you guys filed in Young versus Hawaii, but I don't think so. I could be wrong. We filed. I think we've been on twelve in the last three years. Yeah, trying to keep it all in my head. It was just like. Pfft. Yeah, I know we've done it, it three. I think this year. No, I've got one I'm working on now. That's a state case, and a second one that we have on the to-do list that we haven't started. That falls right off of the Bruin decision. Which, if we're successful, will argue that based on Bruin, Tennessee's statutory structure for uh, permitting people to carry guns in the state is facially unconstitutional. That would be good. Um, yeah. Let me ask That'd you a question awesome. about another state, which you might not have an opinion on. Maryland. Uh, I think Maryland is the model state after Bruin decision went, went up. Uh, they they didn't try to like pass any crazy laws, which I feel bad saying good stuff about Maryland, but um, it leaves a sour taste in your mouth, doesn't it? Yeah, but they didn't try to pass any crazy laws or change laws. They just said, "Oh, Bruin says that we have to offer permits to people here. Go over right ahead and apply." Yeah, uh, a a lot of other states didn't do that, like New York, where GOA is suing. They passed all these crazy laws in New York where basically everywhere is a sensitive place. You can't carry in a sensitive place or with uh, within a thousand feet of a sensitive place. And they made all private businesses sensitive places by default unless you post signs, which is just insane. What do you think about all the different states around the country passing these, all the former states where you could not carry the one of the uh, nine main issue states, some of the nine, nine main issue states, passing laws to restrict carry, even though Bruin said they couldn't do that. For example, New York, they said you cannot. Re Thomas said you cannot. By the way, I got a funny story to tell you about Thomas. You cannot carry. Um, you know, you cannot ban carrying just because a place is where people are gathered. And then New York went ahead and banned carrying in Times Square because that's a place where people gathered. What do you think is going to be the end result of all these states passing obvious, obvious rules against uh, carrying that obviously violate Bruin? I think what you're going to see is a, is a wave of cases being filed that bring the argument that the states thumbing their nose essentially at Bruin and the Second Amendment is going to, to be not only a violation of the Second Amendment uh, as applied to the states through the 14th Amendment, which is what McDonald told us in 2010, the McDonald holding, but that because the states are doing it, that they're potentially, these are civil rights violations. And when you start adding on civil rights violations like the left has used for so long, law firms and attorneys really sort of start taking a hard look at pursuing those because of the uh, statutory provisions for the recovery of attorney's fees. You no longer become a pro bono attorney pursuing something because it's right or just, but you become a advocacy attorney with the opportunity to get lodestar ratings on your fees. And, and that creates an incentive for these kind of cases to get filed and move forward. I think the other thing that's gonna happen is as they are filed, like in New York, I think the federal district courts, to the extent they listen to what Thomas said in Bruin, are far more likely to grant uh, temporary restraining orders and injunctions against the state's enforcement of those laws. Yeah, I got a feeling that GOA is going to get their their uh, preliminary injunction. And speaking of celebrities, Eli EDC is out there. You might not know who Eli EDC is, but he is one of the named plaintiffs in GOA's case in North Dakota versus the final rule surrounding firearm redefinition. Excellent. Yeah, like all the plaintiffs in that, not the state's attorney generals, but all the plaintiffs, the actual name plaintiffs, are uh, my viewers. Excellent. Uh, I might have had a little to do with getting the plaintiffs lined up. 
Well, and, and there's another component of this that's, that's not necessarily like where New York overreacted and just made everything a sensitive place. Bruin opens up this opportunity to, to take a look at what I, for example, in my law practice, I represent gun dealers and manufacturers that have issues with the ATF. So I handle revocation, license applications, adverse action proceedings. I handle all of that kind of stuff for, for dealers and, and not just in Tennessee. I've got Tennessee, Alabama. I've handled these cases all over the country. And that's a little different than what some of the other Second Amendment attorneys do because it, it's more of a direct battle with the ATF, whereas the bump stock case isn't so much a direct battle with the ATF on a, on a licensure matter. Yeah. What, what Bruin is, is giving us an opportunity to take a look at is, you know, typically in my practice, I would have a certain volume of, of FFL revocation cases pending at any one time. And I, like I said, I've been doing it for over two decades. That volume of FFL revocation cases has gone up about 300% since Biden's been in office. So at any one time now, I've got about three times as many revocation cases as I used to handle even when Obama was in office. And, and part of what is going on, I think, just from the industry side of it that I see is because Biden and the Democrats haven't had a lot of success because of the percentages in Congress, passing their gun control agenda as they're using the, the zero tolerance policy that Biden announced a year ago and the ATF's regulatory and license authority to choke off and kill the supply chain from manufacturers to the retail public. And Bruin, I think, is going to give us some new opportunities to argue that ATF's regulatory authority and the way they apply it uh, constitute constitutional violations that prior to Bruin, the federal district courts sort of turned a blind eye to. Yeah, I'm absolutely. I, I think you're, I think you're right. Bruin is definitely a game changer. Do you think it's going to Bruin? I know we're talking a lot about Bruin. We're going to get back to Tennessee in a second, but every time I get an attorney on, I, I love picking that. I, I write a lot about legal stuff. I'm not an attorney, but I write a lot about legal stuff. Uh, do you think, Bru like, what do you think is bigger in Bruin? Because I've had disagreements with people on this. The, the, um, the getting rid of the two-step process where you have, like, intermediate scrutiny and stuff or them saying the right to carry a firearm outside their home is is you know a constitutional right because i think getting rid of the two-step process will lead to a lot more than just saying the right to carry a firearm outside the home that's a great point the the issue has been particularly as we work through the federal district courts the federal appellate courts and, and getting these cases back to the supreme court which has taken us you know heller came down in in 2008 and thomas essentially said hey all you lower federal courts, we told you in 08, this was a fundamental right. And yet you've created all of these uh, analytical tools to try to sidestep what we told you in 08. So Thomas clearing up and getting rid of the two-step process, I think ultimately is more significant in the long run and has a broader spectrum of impact than, than the singular holding that there's a right to carry outside the home for self-defense. All right. Cause I got an argument with an attorney about that. And I was taking the same, I was looking at it the same way you were. <laughs> <laughs> so and he, and he was like, I'm an attorney. I know what I'm talking about. I'm like, I don't think you do. But yeah, but do you really? it's, it's uh, maybe the difference between policy litigators and other attorneys. Maybe. That that might because they're not like a gun attorney or a policy litigator or anything like that. That they were just argument. But I wanted to tell you guys about the story about um, Thomas. So I was invited to two parties. 
the first party I didn't go to, it was my cousin's party. And the second party, I was like, oh, I can go, I can go to Delaware to the beach where I have a beach house at. I was like, I'm going to go to my beach house. So the night before the party, um, I was talking to my mom, and actually Rich was on the phone with us, which is another $1 story. Rich talks to my family from Reven. Um, <laughs> that's my producer. And she's like, yeah, I don't know if I want to go to this party. You know, the security is going to be really high. It's like, why is the security going to be high? Oh, because uh, Clarence Thomas always goes to these parties. Like, and no one mentioned that to me either time. And Rich is like, man, you got to get in the car. You got to drive down there. Absolutely. So I talked to my wife and my wife's like, no. <laughs> but I was like, what? No one told me. That would be one man I would just love to sit there and pick his mind. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you look back at, at Thomas's opinions and a lot of his dissents, and, and you see a pattern of constitutional stewardship and understanding that even most Supreme Court judges don't have. Um, and, and it's been a, he's been there for a substantial amount of time. I'm just glad to see, you know, that it, that it is manifesting itself at this point in time with, with the clarity and assertiveness that it has. I'm being told he has a substantial gun collection and, and, and is really into guns. Well, he, he would have to, to some extent to understand some of the concepts he even discussed in those opinions. Well, he, 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 that's, that's my point. He really does understand firearms where you get a lot of judges who don't. Believe I know. <laughs> uh, I bet you do. You mean like the politicians that pass the laws that don't know anything about guns. Yeah. Uh, yes. Huge problem in Tennessee, even with the GOP. Yeah, exactly. Ah. Why am I Biden soundboard not working? We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women created by go. You know the you know the thing. You mean kind of like that, Rogue? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's there's a difference between not knowing about a gun and having dementia. <laughs> how about if he knows? How about if he has dementia and doesn't know about a gun? Because you remember, he, he well, told you to fire a shotgun up in the air and fire it through a door. Yeah, or, or, or shoot him in the leg. Shoot him in the leg. Shoot him in the leg, yeah. So here's another question. When you're dealing with these politicians, you deal a lot with politicians, especially when they're in session. How do you deal with the politicians who aren't anti-gun but, but not pro-gun because they just don't know enough? That's a... That's a difficult situation to be in, but it's one you have to be able to, to handle. And, and the starting premise is that there, there's basically two approaches to dealing with politicians that, that I embrace. One is that you walk on an appeasement model where you try to befriend the politician, you try to educate the politician, you try to persuade them to help you on your issue or your agenda based upon a personal relationship, which works with some politicians, typically the ones that are already sort of good on the issue to start with. The other model and the one that we tend to use more within TFA is an accountability model where you, you make it clear to them what you want. You make it clear to them that you're willing to help them understand it, comprehend it. You're, you'll meet with them, talk with them. Um, help them draft legislation, help them draft amendments, explain to them by statute, case law, practical experience, why they maybe have the wrong opinion. But as a part of that whole accountability model, they got to understand that if they don't get on board with your issues, that you're willing and you're willing to go raise the money to do it, to go find someone to replace them that would be better for your issues. And, and that's where some advocacy groups fail is, is they're not willing to, to communicate to that legislator. You know, if, if we realize you're not the right plow horse for this field, we're going to try to replace you. 
it's nothing personal. You're just the wrong person in this job. And when you, when, when you give up that tool, you, as a practical matter, concede defeat because if you stay on the appeasement model, they just keep telling you no. They don't want to put the effort into trying to learn or to, or to comprehend the scope of the problem as you see it and deal with it. They just blow you off. Yeah, on my news channel, I have several videos talking about access-based politics, where you, appeasement, the, the politics of Neville Chamberlain. Yeah. If 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 you don't know who that is, look look it up. Look up Churchill versus Nev, Neville Chamber, Chamberlain. Interesting read. But uh, and then you have the confrontational politics, which is like the carrot and stick, right? Where you know if you do something good, we're going to praise you and we're going to let our members know. If you do something bad. We will let our members know. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of disagreement, uh, like FOAC out of Pennsylvania, for example, they use uh, access-based a lot. And there's other national groups that use access-based a lot. But uh, uh, there is a book called Confrontational Politics of, written by the founder of Gun Owners of America. I suggest anyone that hasn't read it. There it is. <laughs> H. H. L. Richardson, uh, uh, the late great H. L. Richardson, who's a great guy, who was a, who was a great guy, but yeah, that book is should be on every lobbyist on every citizen's nightstand. You can learn a lot from that book. Well, you know, and like we said, I've been doing this twenty eight years. It's right here on my credenza. Yeah, so that should show you. To show you something, I think everyone in GOA has read the book because basically the model that GOA is built on, it's a model VCDL is built on and TFA and some of the better state organizations use that model. And it's been very, very successful. GOA and TFA and some of the local groups have been able to get more done with less money than some of the other big organizations by using that that technique, because there's some organizations out there, I'm not going to name any of them, but they will protect their horse in the race. So if their horse does something bad, horse being a politician, which is basically, I don't know, sometimes I, I prefer the horses, but if their horse does something bad, they'll cover for their horse instead of calling them out. I think right. that we need to let them know we're not going to cover for you. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, if, if, if it's, if I've been doing it long enough to know that that, and watching other grassroots groups that just flail away and get nothing done, not on second amendment necessarily, but you know, pick another topic. And, and it's because they use that, that buddy system, you know, they're excited that they got the legislators cell phone number or that they, you know, have can use their conference room you know, if they need it. And it, it's all that friendship based stuff that really as a practical matter, if you've gone through the confrontational politics um, training is, is really a control technique that the legislators use to manage and, and really uh, stonewall advocacy groups that don't know any better than to make it clear that we're going to hold you accountable if you don't get on board with the agenda. Yeah, I, I talked to a couple of people who are more in the access space. And they're like, oh, we don't want to call them out because, you know, they might cut us off. And I'm like, no, that they, they kind of need you because they need the yeah. people and they want the people that you represent. They want the people that are members of your group. And they need you more than you need them. And until you realize that, they're going to be able to walk all over you. Absolutely. I had a, a state house Republican leader tell me uh, probably 15 years ago, you know, he said, uh, John, if, if you don't quit naming the Republicans that are, you know, voting certain ways that are blocking your bills, you know, if you don't quit naming the Republicans and creating problems for us, uh, you're going to find it difficult to get access to our offices to come talk to us about these issues. 
And, and I told him, I said, look, I'm a volunteer. I'm not a paid lobbyist. So if I don't have access, it doesn't hurt my feelings. And it's not going to... Uh, it's not going to hurt your career. Get fired from a paid position because I'm not paid to start with. I said, so I don't care if I've got access to you. What I care more about is that I get accurate, truthful information out to my group, my members. And if I can get 5,000 Tennesseans mad and making phone calls, I think that's a lot more effective in terms of changing public policy than a paid lobbyist coming in here and taking you out for drinks. That's, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And that is something that people have to learn. Plus, uh, TFA is single issue focused, which is firearms. Yes. Which means if they, if they cut you off and say, well, we're not going to give you access. It's like, well, you know, um, we're single issue focused and we care about firearms. If you're not going to do the right thing about firearms, then why do I care if you cut me off? Yeah, really. that's what I've told several politicians. And then they're how like, oh, <laughs> how do you deal with politicians that use, let's just say, wrong statistics to prove their points? Um, that's you a great know, like, question. For instance, you know, we hear politicians talk all the time about, you know, you know, gun, gun violence figures. You know, we've had this many gun deaths, but then they don't follow up between it and say, well, this much is suicide. This much is, um, you know, um, ruled a, uh, a a valid shooting for self protection. How do you deal with those type of politicians that just don't don't understand the statistics? They just repeat what they hear and they don't actually know what's going on in those figures. One thing that that we do within TFA is we do a lot of detailed analysis that we put out. So. If you go to our website, and in, in particular, if you get on our email list, which is free, it's not uncommon to get an email each week when the legislature's in session that says this legislator did this, this one did that. And we snip video clips every opportunity we get to back that stuff up. And then we're trying to, we're trying to build up the understanding of our members who then can vent their frustrations on these legislators. Now, some of them, the progressive left, the Democrat, even the moderate Republicans, you're not going to change them. You just got to replace them. Or you got to tactically deal with them to neutralize their impact and effectiveness. The others, we do it through social media. But importantly, we get a legislator that that is someone we think we can work with, but they're just wrong on their statistics, or they, maybe they're lying about it or just miscomprehending them is we try to load up their constituents with accurate information and then burn their phone lines up. Yeah, that helps out a lot when you go after their phone lines. Um, it, it it really moves, moves the politicians. I've talked to several politicians who said, you know, they weren't aware of something or, you know, they changed their mind because of their phone lines burned up. I'll give you an example in Virginia because that's where I'm from. Virginia came very, very close to banning uh, semi-automatic rifles, which they called assault weapons. People burned up the phone line so much of a representative named Chad Peterson, who's a Democrat, uh, and he also looked and saw the Second Amendment Sanctuary Movement and the big lobby day that we had that year, which was massive, and that actually changed his mind. And that's the reason why we never got an assault weapons ban in Virginia is because the people took the time to engage their politicians. I always tell people the best lobbyist out there is you. And you have to take that step. You have to take that few minutes. And it's not a lot of time. It takes a few minutes just to make a phone call, drop an email or something like that. How do you motivate people to realize that they have the power to do it? Because a lot of people on the other side want the people to believe that they don't have any power when they really do. Yeah, one of the ways that we try to broach that issue is through a direct public speaking events, through our social media activities. But we do follow-up reporting. So as we know 
poll volume is increasing or that legislators are changing their position, posture, or talking points on an issue, we report that just like we would a good or a bad vote. And, and what we're trying to do is to reinforce with our membership and the people that are on our email list, the appreciation of the fact that the phone call volume, that the personal meetings, that the handshakes, that seeing them in the, the grocery store or at church or wherever is having a positive impact on, on those legislators and the conduct of those legislators. Because you're right, the control technique used by the legislature, that they're somehow taught when they go to, you know, maybe legislator school, is you have to try to convince these constituents that you've got their best interest at heart and there's really no need for them to call you and educate you because you've got it all under control. And, and our job as grassroots advocates is to embolden, but to also inform and educate the grassroots so that they feel like they can make a difference and that it's worth their time to make the phone call. And we wanna make that as easy as possible and we wanna give them talking points or statistics or the correct data. And, and that makes it a little more difficult to write your you know, email alerts or your email blast rather than putting out just a single paragraph that says, call legislator Bob and tell him oppose or support if you write three or four more paragraphs that tell them the details about why they should take that position. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And it makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think it's something that we can all learn is how to do this because you really need to learn how the politicians work and how they think. Like you said, when they go to legislative school, they are all taught the same thing. Absolutely. There's okay. too much continuity between constituent oppression for it to just be coincidental. Okay. Uh, somebody wants to know if you can explain the new SBR law in Tennessee. Yeah. Tennessee this year passed a law. We had a statute that said that machine guns, SBRs, SBSs uh, were illegal to possess unless you had the NFA paperwork. So the statute was really sort of pointless, except that it allowed the state to prosecute at the state level a violation of federal law. So the prosecuting of federal law at state level? Well, yeah, and that's what they could because we had a specific statute that made it a state crime to illegally possess under federal law an SBR or an SBS. What's the point? Yeah, what's the point? other than the federal government's too busy and they'd rather the state spend the money to do the prosecution if they could or if they would. So they repealed that statute that had that language in it. The problem is that it's still a crime under federal law to have an SBR or an SBS that doesn't have the tax stamp. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, which is ridiculous, but it's still there. So it really is a substantive matter nothing changed in Tennessee. It's, it's form over substance. Uh, because there's also a second statute that's just so broad, it's ridiculous. It says it, uh, the state can prosecute as a crime, any violation of any federal firearms act. So even though they repealed the one that specifically talked about SBRs, SBSs, they left on the books the other statute that says if it's a federal violation, it can still be prosecuted under this other code section. So it's another example of there was an amendment to the law that creates just as much confusion because they didn't fix it in both places. So the fact is in Tennessee, as we sit here today, you can't possess those things under state or federal law, even after the passage of that law this year, without having the tax stamp. Interesting, interesting. And uh, the viewer also wants to know, um, and I think that was uh, Steve, Steve-O545, he also wants to know when you think that constitutional, true constitutional carry will pass in Tennessee. I think uh, that the law that passed in 2021 that Governor Lee was the primary proponent of 
that is not true constitutional carry. True constitutional carry we define as it's not a crime, a statutory structure where it's just not a crime to carry with the intent to go armed. Tennessee doesn't have that. We've been a state for over 220 years. We've never had that. We don't have it today. All of the things that we have in Tennessee, the permit, the concealed permit, permitless vehicle transport, and the permitless carry law from 2021, all of those are affirmative defenses to a criminal charge of carrying with intent to go armed. Now, I do think, because I've talked with some legislators, and, 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 and not a lot of them, because they're sort of in, you know, off season right now, but that they went, oh my God, when Bruin came down and said, we don't really have constitutional carry, do we? We need to deal with this in 2023. So I do think there's a substantially heightened momentum because of Bruin that Tennessee legislature or an increasing number of them are gonna look at true constitutional carry in, in the next two years. And, and here's what it's gonna take. It's gonna take a massive push from the grassroots to convince the legislature that them running around and calling it constitutional carry when that's not true is intolerable to the citizens of the state. Yeah, that is awesome. That is awesome. All right. Uh, we got about um, a little bit over a minute left. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to give you the final word. But I just want to thank uh, Jason for coming on. And Jason, tell everyone they can find you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Unfortunately, I was having some technical difficulties, so I didn't get to talk as much as I wanted to. But um, yeah, you can reach me on uh, every YouTube channel. You can reach me, just look for the Rogue Banshee on just about any social media site. And occasionally I talk about guns. And you've been referenced by Congress. And I have. I've, I've, I've been, uh, I think as uh, Jordan from JSD Supply said, is I am a uh, I am a Congress. Um, what do you say? It was a, I was Congress famous. Yeah, they and in the, the hearings on ghost guns, ghost guns, they were brought up like rogue banshees videos and stuff. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I thought it was too. It's it, it's it's kind of funny when you you see just this little channel suddenly get uh get noti noticed by uh, some anti gunners. <laughs> Yeah, and you can always follow me at junkrub.locals.com. We are off next week, but we'll be back tomorrow. Uh, and check us out on the Firearms Radio Network. Once again, thank you, JSD Supply, for sponsoring this podcast. With that, I'm going to kick it over to John. John, tell everyone where they can find you at and tell them where they can find information on the Tennessee Firearms Association and your big event coming up. Take up as much time as you need. They can find information about the Tennessee Firearms at our website, TennesseeFirearms.com, right there on your screen. On it, they can subscribe for free. They don't even have to be a member to our mailing list, which gives them all this feed and information that we were discussing during the show. The annual event is September the 3rd. It's our PAC fundraiser. Uh, there's a link to it off of that main website, but the direct link to it is TFALAC.org. That's T-F-A-L-A-C, which stands for Legislative Action Committee.org. And then if they have questions that we didn't get to today, uh, the best way to ask questions of TFA or me individually is go to the TFA's Facebook group. It's got about 12,000 members on it, but it's heavily moderated. It's heavily monitored. And we try to restrict discussions to Second Amendment issues in Tennessee. So, you know, we don't put up all the uh, generic Second Amendment stuff that's on every website out there. We try to focus on Tennessee aspects of Second Amendment issues. TFALAC.org, right? Correct. That's it. All right. We'll have Eric Pratt as our keynote speaker coming up uh, September the 3rd. All right, guys, thank you so much once again. And with that, we are out of here, and we'll see you tomorrow during the show.